Hello, and welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as the social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaai.org. Today's edition of our Conversations from the World of Allergy podcast series is a bit different from prior episodes, and you'll learn why in just a second. We are extremely fortunate to have Dr. Jennifer Gunter join us today. For those of you who are not familiar with Dr. Gunter and her work, she's a board certified in both obstetrics and gynecology, as well as pain medicine. Dr. Gunter is one of the world's most prolific defenders of evidence-based information and combats misinformation in a variety of very high-profile ways including her two New York Times bestselling books, her new podcast called Body Stuff with Dr. Jen Gunter, as well as her regular appearances on the largest platforms available, not to mention her hundreds of thousands of followers on social media. Today's topic is medical misinformation, and I cannot imagine a better guest to help us understand this complex and important area. Dr. Gunter, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. This is going to be great. Now, some of our listeners may not be familiar with your personal story, and I thought it might be a great place to start. Would you mind just sharing how you got started on your journey combating misinformation? Sure. So uh, many years ago, gosh, I guess uh, 18 years ago now, um, was when I had uh, my own pregnancy. And, you know, up until that point, you know, I had the internet was really, I think, you know, fairly a new source of information for people. But yet, you know, people would come in the office with a lot of misinformation. And I wouldn't really kind of maybe understand so much how, where it came from or sort of the, um, the, you know, the process behind it. And then I had a, my own pregnancy, which was very complicated. It was a triplet pregnancy and ended with the death of one of my sons and the other two were in the intensive care unit for a very long time. They were born very prematurely and, you know, they had heart disease and lung disease and all kinds of you know, complicated, you know, the, basically go through the laundry list of organs and one, one of them had one of the problems. And so like everybody else, I had, you know, I turned to the internet to look for information and I was really, you know, horrified at a lot of the things that I found and I got sucked down rabbit holes and did things that I wish I hadn't done medically with my kids because of information I found online out of desperation. And so I just decided that if it was that hard for me and I had those many problems, then what was it like for everybody else? And, you know, it made me really think about all those patients that we see that have problems that don't have fixes, you know, that, that we have to either wait it out or we have to wait and see. And it's so hard to do not, what seems like nothing, even though waiting is actually sometimes big medicine, right? And how you know, how the communication sometimes fails us even when everybody's doing the best. And and there's always, you know, a grifter there waiting to sort of um, sell their, their gummy or, you know, their diet or whatever. Um, and, and I just felt that 
that maybe I could, and this is very naive, that I was going to change the medical internet. <laughs> and that was really it. I was like, I'm going to fix the medical internet, you know, like yeah. having like no concept what the internet really actually even was. Cause I'm like the most computer illiterate person that, <laughs> that I think exists. So, um, and so here I am, you know, uh, you know, I didn't get started with my sort of online stuff till my kids were a little bit older, right? You know, they, cause they were so ill for several years. So they were about four and I was sort of coming out of the fog and sort of, you know, they were now off oxygen at this point. We didn't have so many readmissions to the hospital and I actually was sort of up for air. I just thought, okay, this is ridiculous. I have to do something about this. And so here I am. Oh my gosh. So here I am. It's, uh, so fast forward many years. So uh, to give us a frame of reference, how old are your children now? They turn 18 in, on July 31st. Oh I know, goodness. right? Modern medicine, they were 783 grams and 843 grams. And, wow. you know, they had both had bronchopulmonary dysplasia, went on oxygen for a year. My son, Oliver, also had um, a large ASD and critical pulmonary valve stenosis. He had his pulmonary valve ballooned when he was 1,200 grams. They had um, retinopathy of prematurity. They had, you know, intraventricular hemorrhages. They had, um, you know... You just, you know, name the name all this. Oh, one of them had congenital hypothyroidism on top of everything because, you know, because <laughs> being premature wasn't enough. And, you know, so yeah, and now they're 18 and one's driving a car and we're looking at college applications. Oh my gosh. So do they have one more year at home uh, before they, they leave the nest or um, are they are they out the door soon? Yeah, they... Um, you know, they because they were so premature uh, and they were actually the youngest in their kindergarten class, mm. uh, it was just really – because they hadn't gone to day, daycare or anything because they, they we tried once and one of them ended up in the hospital the next week because of the cold they caught. So, you know, socially they needed to kind of repeat kindergarten and they were so young. And anyway, and it worked out to be the best. Um, and they've done – that was a great decision. And again, trusting the experts, right? I trusted the experts at the school who made that recommendation. And I said, okay, you're the experts. If I trust you to educate my kids, I should trust you with this decision too. It's worked out really well. And uh, yeah, so they're just, they're going into grade 12 and they're having their sort of last summer at home kind of thing. And um, I just, I can't believe if you told me 18 years ago that, that I would be here, I of course, couldn't have conceptualized it. And, you know, I mean, I think they're here because of modern medicine, you know, I, like my kids wouldn't be here if evidence-based medicine wasn't a thing. Mm. Well, thank you for sharing that personal journey with us. What do your, uh, what do your children think of uh, their very prominent mother who's out there in the world uh, yielding your lasso of truth? <laughs> Well, you know, I, how I am online is pretty much how I am at home. So it's not, they're pretty, so, you know, there are, there's lots of eye rolling and whatever. That's just how she is. And like, you know, they're very uninterested, if, you know, in a lot of ways. Uh, but there are like, you know, vagina models all over the house and uterus stuffies and things like that. And they just, it, they just roll with it. It's just, they know that's just the way it is. Um, you know, I think... Uh, the only time <laughs> one of my sons, they, they really don't, don't think much of it, but one of my sons said uh, about a few months ago, uh, you know, there was some show of his that was, that he loved um, on Cartoon Network that was getting canceled about a train um, 
and it was like this big, he, was, he did all this fan art for it and stuff. And they were going to have this big thing on Twitter to, to start to try to get it trending to save it. So of course that's when he's like, mom, you're on Twitter, right? Could you help me out with this? And here's my fan art and can you tweet it? And so I was like, sure. <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> And now, then we uh, watched the show together and it was really amazing. I was like, it's awful. This is being canceled. This is a great show. <laughs> uh, when people use the term misinformation, can you explain to us what that means and then offer some examples of how that may present online? You, it sounds like you were a victim of this yourself and now you're combating it every day. But what does that actually look like for those who aren't familiar? Yeah. So just, you know, inf information that's really not correct at all. So that, you know, instead of saying that, you know, the sun is hot, you say, oh, the sun is cold. And, and you know, so you have to sort of, and if you don't know, if you're someone who's never seen the sun before, then, then, then that might be something you would, you, you could potentially believe in. And sometimes misinformation sounds very obviously incorrect to us as physicians, but we always have to remember to patients, it may not sound that way because we've essentially grown up with the language of medicine and they haven't. And also when you're sick, you're very vulnerable and it's very easy to, you know, we all want to hear that there's an easy answer. I mean, all, everybody wants an easy answer to their problems, be it, a, you know, um, a plumbing problem, um, a travel issue or your health. Like we all want things to be easy. So I, the, the thing that I think is also important to really separate out is between sort of the, is between misinformation, which is incorrect information that might be spread, maybe not necessarily with, with, um, bad intentions and disinformation, which is also, which is incorrect information that is spread with, you know, knowingly spreading bad information. And both are super important because misinformation, people spread it because they just read a headline or they think it's good or they don't know, or they're scared and they want other people to read this versus disinformation, you know, which would be, you know, malignant from, you know, anti-vaccine forces, for example. Mm, no, I think that's a great background and you're right. And it's, yeah, it, it's just kind of everywhere. And if, the pandemic hasn't highlighted anything else. It's just the fact that there's just so much misinformation and disinformation out there uh, and we're all living it every day. And you've spent years combating this. Can you offer any tips or some simple, simple steps for all of us to become more savvy when we navigate online or things that we can tell our patients? Yeah. I mean, so, so when I see somebody in the office, I give everybody a list of three sites that I recommend they go to, to get good quality information. And I never, I never roll my eyes at somebody coming in with information at all. In fact, I say, it seems, you know, when someone's got, they, they bring up something and it's clearly they've come up with an idea from somewhere. I'll say, you know, it sounds like, you know, you have, you've, you've done quite a bit of research and I'd really like to know more about that because one, if, so if you dismiss someone, it means that you're dismissing their, they're looking up their medical problem, which is wrong. I mean, people should have access to quality information. The internet's a great library. And you know what? That means they were engaged about their healthcare. So that's a good thing. We want people to be engaged. And I would say it's, you know, people end up in these places because of predators, people that have written bad articles that are selling bad stuff. You know, these are the snake oil people or the, you know, the people standing at the sideshow and the carnival go like, come here, you know, come to the, come to the house of mysteries. And I'm going to like, guess your weight and, and tell your future. I mean, these are people who are luring people in, you know, they're just doing it with flashy ads or products or using influencers. So I asked them where they get the information because 
very often, so one, people people I think really like that. They respond to that because it's validated their search. But two, when you can point to somebody where where that person steered them wrong, often they're like, oh, thank you. Like they don't know that person was is, is being malignant. Uh, you know, so a common example I get is about, you know, hormone testing for menopause, which is not indicated at all, or um, people who promote uh, that, you know, all your health problems are due to systemic effect, infections with candida, right? Um, and so, you know, when I get those sites, I say, okay, well, this person has a book that they're selling based on that, and they've published no research. This is their hypothesis. And, you know, we don't do medical decisions based on hypotheses, and this is where they're wrong. I would say that 90% of people are super happy to have that um, have that given back to them so they know for future. And then I follow it up with, if you're interested in this, these are the three sites I would go to. These are the sites that I would search myself if I wanted to find information about this health condition. And I think if you follow it up with, um, with a this is where I would go, then um, people are generally really very responsive to that. Uh, and they that validates their search. It gives them a good place to go, and um, and hopefully then they won't go back to that other place. I think that's great advice, and um, I couldn't agree more with with so much of what you said. And you know, there's just uh, sometimes simple areas where people don't understand the methodology and the importance behind different sources of evidence, what constitutes evidence, and how correlation does not equal causation. And just having that conversation can oftentimes really um, lead to a, a whole level of uh, trust and and really help arm them with uh, important information for when they do their own searching online. Now, I, I have a lot of colleagues who would say, you know, I don't have time for this. Why should I go on social media? Who, you know, I, why would I subject myself to all these things? So why should they become at least more aware? Whether they like it or not, it's not going away, right? So why should our colleagues become more aware of sources of misinformation? Does this actually impact medical decision-making with our patients and interfere with our relationships with them? Yeah. So I think everybody should have an awareness of what's going on. Now, I don't think everybody needs to participate because it's not for everybody, you know, like just like, you know, cardiothoracic surgery is not for me, right? Like we all have, you know, medicine, I view this almost as like another specialty in each specialty, right? So, so, you know, everything can be for everybody, but I still need to have an awareness of how the heart works, right? I still need to have an awareness about what's going on. So when those situations come up, I can refer appropriately. And I think social media is as much sort of a subspecialty in medicine because it's really affecting our care. And you know, I would say four years ago, you know, you, you would have obviously believed me because you've been active online, but so many other doctors, you know, would sometimes roll their eyes at stuff that I do online and that's not important. And six or seven years ago, you know, many medical professional societies rolled their eyes at what I did online. And I think everybody now is actually, you know, realizing because of not just the anti-vaccine sentiment, but the anti-mask sentiment and the sort of anti-seriousness of COVID sentiment that, that this is actually really a problem. So I think people need to know what their patients are being exposed to. So when they see them in the office, they are prepared. Because if you didn't know that people thought, you know, vaccines contained aborted fetuses. When somebody brought that up in the office, you wouldn't be able to reassure them it doesn't. And I think one of the misconceptions we all have 
is that every person we see who's read mis, you know, misinformation is a diehard sort of, you know, what I call 10 percenter, the person who you're never going to change. You know, uh, it, like nothing you say is going to make a difference. They are, this is gospel to them. And the best that you can do in the office is just establish a rapport with that patient and, and really not get into the discussion. And maybe over time, they will view you as a trusted source and you can do something about it. What you're trying to do in the office is protect, is prevent the other 90% of people from being contaminated by that 10%. And so the people who stumble across the disinformation and they can't tell the difference, they don't know it's a lie or not. And it's maybe made them hesitant about the vaccine. If you're aware of those reasons, for example, the lies about fertility, then you can very easily, it'll just roll off your tongue when you say in the office why it's not right. People mistake hesitation as uncertainty. And so when you can just go boom, 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 that's why those things are wrong. And you're going to say it over and over and over again. So the 20 minutes you invest in figuring out the lies is going to pay off over and over and over again. Um, I think you can actually really, really help a lot of people really, you know, sort of nip off a lot of those sort of buds um, that might end up, you know, sending someone further and further down a rabbit hole. So yeah, if you're aware, and so I tell everybody, whatever specialty you're in, you should also know like the top, the top five sort of misinformation things online. Like for me, for OBGYN, I mentioned the candidate, you know, Canada, that's a big one. And I'm sure in allergy and immunology, you guys got a lot. We have that as well. Uh, <laughs> so we share that with you. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's an equal opportunity offender, that one. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but I like what you said about um, sort of developing a spiel. And it's I, I think of this as um, conversations surrounding smoking cessation. Um, these are hard conversations. We're not going to be successful at getting everybody to stop smoking. Uh, but if we don't have the conversation, then we're not going to help anybody, right? Right. Exactly. I mean, there's a lot of things that we ask. Like it, that that might be uncomfortable. I mean, not everybody wants to give their sexual history, for example, when you're talking with somebody. And so for some people, that's a very sensitive topic. And so you have you have to have interview styles that that obviously um, you know can make a patient feel comfortable and open. And so what I would say is, you know, when I meet someone who I'm really unable to convince about something, I'll say, "Boy, it sounds like you know have, that maybe you might have read something about different online, and would you like to share that with me?" Oh, that's great. Well, to pivot a little bit here, um, what made you decide to start a podcast as if you're not busy enough? And, and how's it going so far? Uh, um, yeah, I know. I'm just trying to bend time to my will. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm like, yeah, I'm secretly a witch and I'm able to manage multiple timelines. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, well, I, so I, I've been sort of interested in other mediums, I think, of communication, and you have to go where people are. And podcasts really are, you know, have become exceedingly popular in the last couple of years. And I, uh, I, I did a TED Talk in 2019 uh, on menstruation, and uh, that went over really well. And uh, in the first month, I think it had like a million views, and it was actually the top three, pod, top three TED Talk that was uh, seen online in 2020. So that's, that's when they released it online. So that was really cool. And so the TED people kind of approached me and said, you know, would you be interested in doing a podcast? And I was like, oh, um, yeah, maybe. And so they said, what do you think it would look like? And so I pitched exactly, you know, basically what people are listening is that, you know, I find people don't want to just listen to like medical content straight. I mean, it's boring. I mean, you like, you know, you sit through a 45 minute lecture and you're just like at the end of 45 minutes, if you've just had 
fact after fact after fact, your brain is exhausted. And I always thought about the best lectures that I go to that I that I love are the lectures where people talk about, well, the history of this. And they they drop in all these sort of little other sort of non-medical facts, but that flesh out the background, that give you a bigger picture, that sort of that that put the whole thing in color. And so that, that was kind of the podcast that I pitched, that it wouldn't just be the medicine, but it would also include, you know, some of this history or anthropology or sociology that's sort of adjacent to that topic. And uh, and they said, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. So, um, so we, that's what we did. Are you having fun with it so far? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I got to interview interview a couple of like people who are just for me like superstars so um dr helen king who's a classicist from um, the uk who's you know an absolute expert in hippocrates and hippocrates and women and you know so many you know and she's awesome because you know she hates how hippocrates has been co-opted by the wellness movements you know like all of these things people say he said like let food be thy medicine he didn't say that like, you know, so it's, it's not, so not even, you know, like if we wouldn't, you know, do surgery like the ancient Greeks, maybe we shouldn't like follow their medical care either. Cause they didn't, they didn't understand the body the way we did, but they didn't even say some of those things. So that's what even makes it more infuriating. So that was amazing. And I also got to interview Dr. Kristen Hawks, who's the anthropologist who sort of birthed the grandmother hypothesis for menopause. And so this was, you know, these were, I got to talk to all these super smarty pants doctors in their fields. And I love, you know, one of my favorite things in the world is going to grand rounds about a subject that I know nothing about and that I'll never have to deal with. Like, oh, I'm going to go to this, you know, grand rounds on this obscure tumor on the pancreas because I love listening to experts like talk about their expertise. And so I wanted to take some of that into, um, you know, into the podcast. Well, I think it's great. Uh, and I would encourage anybody out there who's interested to take a listen. And one of the things I love about uh, your podcast and your approach to it is that you don't dumb down the science at all, but you do offer explanations as you dissect these different areas of misinformation. As you mentioned, you uh, you tie in the historical aspects and personal anecdotes, and then really you just tell people, here's how your body works. So in the context of a very busy um, you know, clinical setting, uh, do you have any pearls of wisdom to help all of us have these similar conversations with individual patients? Yeah. So, you know, the conversations tend to not take as long as you think. First of all, I think we all assume that it's going to be like a 30 minute conversation and it's not. I mean, often when you give people that little bit of backstory, it's, it's really less than five minutes. Um, and I, what I would say again is having your online resources and say, you know, let's, you know, let's, I, I want you to go look at this, you know, maybe this video or, you know, or this podcast, or these are things I would definitely suggest, or here's a printout. And I have like, I print out a lot of the articles online that are maybe written by other people, but that support my view. And I have them printed out and I give them to people. Cause you know what? Not everybody has access, good internet access. And not everybody has a printer or like me is always out of ink, <laughs> you know? So, you know, so I try to, you know, sort of be very proactive that way. Uh, but I do really believe in investing a lot of time in just educating people about how their body works. And so I, you know, for example, with vaginal health, I'm always, because one of the big myths I get is that you can, you know, change the pH of your vagina. Right. And so every single person who comes in who has anything that's even vaguely adjacent to that 
And even if it's not, I give them the spiel about how the vagina, you know, how the pH works, how that's governed. And I'll proactively say, and if you read any of this online, not only is it incorrect, but that means that person doesn't understand the vagina and you shouldn't be getting any information from them. And so, you know, I can give that talk in, in like, two or three minutes. And you have it simplified in such a way that, you know, most people are like, wow, I didn't know that. Thank you so much for telling me. And I have a follow-up handout that has like the bullet points. So to kind of reinforce it. And the few people that have additional questions, it's it's almost, you know, another minute or two. It's, it's never as long as you think. So I would say that it's really worth engaging. I think one of the big problems with with a lot of medicine is that we assume people can't learn it. And I think, you know, I think one of the biggest sort of myths or that we need to bust about medicine is it's not that hard. There's a lot of it and it can be complex, but the actual concepts, unless you're talking about like the Krebs cycle or something like that, you know, isn't, isn't that hard to learn and we can bring everybody up to a, if to a different level and that's going to benefit everybody. And, and that's one of the definitions of being an expert, right? If we can take complicated medical information and explain it in ways that anybody can understand, that means that we truly understand the, the topic at hand as well. And uh, that's why we're here. And we just need to practice our spiel so that it sort of rolls off the tongue. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because, you know, again, people people want that from doctors. When they do, you know, uh, surveys, you know, to who do you want to find your information from online, you know, most people actually say they want to find, they want to get information from doctors. It's just, they can't because it's either written in such a board. Sometimes I go to some medical professional societies and I'll read their patient handouts and I'm just like, <sighs> after like the second line, I'm like, oh my God, how do you expect people to read that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you may be shocked to hear this, Dr. Gunter, but in our specialty of allergy and immunology, we also have pervasive myths and areas of misunderstanding. <laughs> uh, and you, your recent podcast episode debunking all these supplements and products that tout magical immune boosting powers uh, really was on point for our audience. Can you offer a summary <laughs> of why the term immune boosting is all marketing and not science? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, the 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 problem is you know the immune system here i'm speaking to like an expert is so complex it's like saying boosting your garden well what does that mean do you mean like putting more fertilizer on does it more sun well not all plants like the sun um do you really want that plant to overgrow is that going to be really good for the whole ecosystem so so yeah i think that it's just such a it's it's such a bad analogy, you know, for what happens in the body. So yeah, if I could get rid of that boosting the immune system sort of, you know, lexicon for if I could get that off the internet, that would be awesome. Because I think it's just, it's so pervasive because people don't like, that's the thing with the immune system, right? Like if people can visualize a heart, they can visualize a pump, they can visualize a bladder because they've seen something fill in empty. But how do you visualize the immune system? It's this sort of, it's like the metabolism. It's this sort of nebulous thing that we all have heard and we know is important, but we can't really quite visualize. And so, I mean, unless you're an expert. And so I think that really leads to a great source of disinformation. You know, if you look at the organs that we can sort of like, like, that are just something that's we're much more familiar with. I think it's easier for people to be, you know, to sort of have that misdirection or have that misinformation corrected. 
And there's purposeful confusion, right? Because a lot of these things are overall pretty healthy in general. I mean, we should all be eating a, a variety of different fresh fruits and vegetables and things like that. But then when you 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 know apply some very specific uh, medical claim to eating a pint of blueberries a day, it I mean, you can see why there's overlap and confusion. Yeah, I mean, and it ties into a lot of these sort of fallacies, like, for example, the ancient fallacy, that's a big one, you know, with the immune system, like, you know, oh, well, if we were just all eating like the cavemen, we'd be like, we'd be healthier. Oh, really? <laughs> you know, I mean, the anthropologists certainly roll their eyes at that one. And I think it's, you know, we have this sort of ancient is good, you know, hearkening to a different time and, you know, this sort of quest for purity, which is a very sort of religious and also human sort of trait. And these things get folded in with medicine in a way that people can't see. I mean, you know, when people talk about ancient therapies from 500 years ago, I mean, they're talking about things that, you know, we had no idea what worked. And I mean, you know, when, for example, you know, the ancient Greeks, which is much longer in the history in the past, you know, they thought that, you know, that for example, women were overly moist, that we just couldn't, mm -hmm. we had like terrible fluid management and not just like from the vagina, but like every single cell was too wet. And, you know, so you're thinking, well, okay, you don't want to base the therapy on that physiologic concept, right? <laughs> Cause that's wrong. Um, and yeah, I think that when things are scary as health can be, uh, it's, easier to sort of say, harken back to a simpler time. And, you know, oh, if we were just all like that, things would be better. And, you know, it's, it's just not true. So yeah, ancient therapies are a big one. That's a big overlap with, with, uh, I think the immune system and diet, you know, like the paleo diet and all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff, which, you know, humans are omnivores and, you know, it, they've, they've been successful in so many different diverse environments. The idea that, um, that there's one superfood. I mean, if you think about people that, you know, the Inuit from the northernmost part of Canada and people who live in the Mediterranean, their diets would not resemble each other at all in any way. And yet they're both incredibly, you know, historically healthy and productive and, um, and thrive in their environment. You know, so if there were one superfood, there would people would we wouldn't have spread around the world. We would have had to stay where that superfood was. <laughs> Absolutely. Where where do you uh, tend to find your inspiration for content or new areas to address? You cover really a lot of different territory with everything that you're doing. Do you get this from patient questions, online encounters, or any other areas of, of interest? Well, you know, sometimes it it's I would say it sort of varies, and right now it's been difficult because. Obviously, everybody's COVID, 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 and you, sometimes you're just like, oh my gosh, there are other things we have to talk about too, and it's hard. It's hard not to just want to cover that all the time. But I think that uh, so often I get questions by direct message, and I'll think, oh, well, there's something there, or someone will send a message about something, and I'll say, okay, I've had that now from like four people, so maybe there's a thread there I need to pull. Sometimes it's just something I read and I found interesting, and I'm like, I don't care if y'all find this interesting or not. I do, so I'm gonna write about it. Um, and I think that that diversity of content is is what keeps coming people coming back, and I I think that you know just 
we all know that so many different fields of medicine all intertwine. I mean, so for example, as an immunologist, you know, you're going to face the myth about the vaccine um, causing, you know, miscarriages, right? Just like I'm going to face, you know, a different aspect of the myth about the vaccine that might maybe not be directly OBGYN, but related to it's bad for your immune system, for example. And so I think that um, it behooves us, you know, I, I think that's why when I cover something that doesn't feel to me that it's directly OBGYN related, it almost always ends up being once I finish researching it, that there's some way that it interconnects. Oh, that's great. Um, as a defender of women's health, you not only discuss important health-related topics, but you also delve into important areas impacting care, such as healthcare policy, legislation, and things along those lines. And this really makes you a very prolific target for all kinds of, I'll just say hate. It, it is what it is, and it's unfortunate. How do you personally deal with these trolls? Or, you know, For those folks out there that don't know what trolls are, they are uh, all over the, the internet and online, and they uh, are basically exist to try to incite emotion in the people who read their posts. Um, and what I'm assuming is just constant negativity. Any tips for the rest of us who, you know, also um, want to use social media as medical professionals? So how do you deal with it and what can the rest of us do? Well, I mean, I, it's how I deal with it is, you know, sometimes it, it doesn't really get to me that much, the, the trolling, because it's so ridiculous. And, mm -hmm. and maybe because at this point, because I have so many followers that if someone says something awful to me, like my followers jump in and I'm always like, oh, that's so sweet. And so that, you know, that's, that's really nice. Or they'll say, oh, that person's a bot or, you know, they do all, you know, I sort of feel like I have this like whole team of people um, working sort of behind the scenes who are looking out for me because they appreciate the content. So, and that's kind of the community that you create. And so that's super cool. I think that, you know, trolling is going to happen and everybody, people have different levels of what they can tolerate. And I think for someone who that's really bothersome, certainly if you're online, you can change your settings. So you don't see a lot of that stuff, mm -hmm. right? That, you know, you're only, for example, on Twitter, seeing the people that you follow or the people that you, you know, have verified accounts or other types of things. And, you know, that can limit your experience a little bit, but it can also provide you more safety or comfort and that's okay. Uh, and so I think you just have to do what works for you. I think the harder thing is, is when, you know, somebody, um, you know, really sets out to target you specifically. So like a lot of trolling is just like general trolling. Like it's just general garbage. Um, let's say the mean girls sitting on the schoolyard steps, you know, or the mean, the mean kids. Because uh, because I think it, it, I shouldn't say it's just mean girls because there's a lot of people that do it. You know, saying that, hurling insults to people that they walk by. They're very generic and they don't, you know. And, and yes, I understand how that bothers a lot of people, but that doesn't bother me specifically. But when people like really go out of their way to target you and they write like, malicious things that are disinformation. You know, that's tough because again, someone reading that online about you, they don't know that's untrue. Just like they don't know that the, you know, that the, the vaccine doesn't cause miscarriages, right? Like they, you know, they, they don't have that information yet. So yeah, that can be hard. Um, and I think that's why people just have to decide if, um, you know, what kind of profile works for them. And certainly when you're engaged, you know, in a lot of, like I write a lot about, you know, abortion and reproductive rights. And certainly that leads to a lot of, um, you know, I, I, it just hasn't happened lately, touch wood, but, you know, getting pieces written about you in Breitbart and stuff like mm -hmm. that is, you know, uh, sometimes is a little bit unsettling. Um, but, you know, it's, I just feel like the mission is so important and people really need that information. And, um, and I think I, 
I really am at the point where this is, I mean, we're really, I think, in a very critical situation around the world with, um, you know, all these variants coming up and, um, you know, our inability to sort of push the vaccination rate much higher here in the States and delivering vaccines to countries that need them. And I just, you know, I really feel that this is an all hands on deck moment and whatever we can do at this point, um, this might not lead people to staying active online, maybe long-term, but right now, Mm -hmm. like we need everybody. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Uh, are you like me where you can get 100 positive comments on something you post, but then one uh, idiot out there and then you say, oh, my gosh, and you fixate on that one moron uh, and ignore the rest? <laughs> you know what? That goes away. It does. I'm past. I have gone through that. I'm I, I'm in I'm in the post negative comment phase. <laughs> and then to, for a long time, though, I wasn't. And yeah, I mean, you know, because we all want everybody to like everything that we do. And it's very easy to fixate on that one negative comment. And um, I think because I've been doing it for so long and because, you know, the negative comments are almost always like the same. There's like a, like there's maybe like six or seven that they fall into. And I just, I just ignore it, but it's really funny. They bother my partner. (laughs) 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 And so he gets all worked up sometimes about them in a very sweet way. And I'm just like, it's okay. Just let it go. That, that doesn't bother me. Um, You know, if somebody says something that I'm like, oh, did I get that wrong? Then that really bothers me because I want to make sure mm-hmm. I I didn't, you know, misspeak or something. But yeah, so it doesn't – eventually, I think it's just with practice, right? It's sort of like if you um, – this is how I, this is my analogy, you know, in the summer when you walk barefoot on the gravel for the first time, how painful it is. Mm. And then by the end of the summer, your feet are all toughened up and you can be running on the gravel. So I'm, I think I'm finally at the toughened up phase. No, I think that's great. Uh, and I, I love what you said. Two things. One was uh, there's so much benefit because you get such good positive feedback from everybody who value your content. And then the other would just be volume. You, you get used to it. And once you see the pattern, it's almost comical in some ways of just really why can't the trolls evolve over time and why are they still using the same tactics and calling us shills and things like that it's almost boring right. in a way it is yeah. and I, it's just the whole pharma shill thing is really <laughs> fascinating to me because one you can look it up on ProPublica you mm-hmm. know I mean I think the data is up to the last maybe two years uh, but two all these people get money from supplements and none of it is like disclosed, right? So, I mean, and a lot of these doctors that people are defending have their own lines of supplements. Wait a minute. So they're not a shill, but somehow like, it's, I find that, I think this is kind of the, my next area that I'm going to be getting into is this absolute need to regulate supplements like pharmaceuticals. Mm. Um, I honestly believe if we could do that, that we would be able to change the face of health information online. Because so much of what is said is garbage that's out there to support supplements. And you know that if the pharmaceutical companies could get away saying that kind of stuff about the products, they would, but they can't because of regulations. Mm -hmm. And I think consumers deserve to know what they're putting in their body. I think people deserve to know what's safe and what's not. You know, the idea that, for example, uh, just I'm just going to take black cohosh because it's something that's recently studied and I'm aware about. 25% of you know bottles of black cohosh in the United States don't contain any black cohosh at all. Hmm. 25%. Could you imagine if 25% of the uh, you know of the you know searchazine that people took didn't have searchazine? 
Like that, like the allergist would be up in arms. They'd be like, our patients can't, how can they trust that, you know, this company needs to be, you know, shut down. This is ridiculous, right? But this is what's happening. And so you can't even study whether or not it works because in your study, you don't even know if all those bottles Mm -hmm. had black cohosh in them or not. And then maybe they all did, but you don't know if the ones they buy on the shelves did, right? So you, it completely you know, hampers your, your, completely prevents you from even studying the product. And so you would think that if people wanted to know if people could be helped with black cohosh, they'd be invested in making sure that's actually what the bottles contained, you know? So I think that we really need as physicians, um, as everybody in healthcare to say that our patients deserve to know what they're putting in their body. And if, if a, if a, supplement company is is saying that a supplement can do something well why shouldn't they be have to prove it like a pharmaceutical company so I really think that's that would actually stop a ton of online um, disinformation because it's so linked you know supplements and wellness are intricately linked uh, you know it's fascinating to me that people who uh, believe conspiracy theories are more likely to buy supplements mm, that is fascinating Okay, so here we there we go. Dr. Jen Gunter versus the wellness industrial complex. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, as we as we wrap up here, just a couple more questions, if that's okay. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's amazing to me with your career. You're uh, a physician, a parent, an accomplished author. You have a new podcast, and you're doing all these great things in the world. And you could easily just focus on any one of these areas and just be wildly successful with that. What benefits have you experienced from engaging across so many platforms and, and what keeps you going? What, what makes you want to take on uh, the supplement industry, for instance? Well, I think that, you know, I'm sort of, I've been in, you know, clinical medicine for a long time. You know, I graduated medical school over 30 years ago. Um, and so, God, that's awful. It's a long time ago. <laughs> and so, you know, you start to think like, I, I've been having these conversations the same way for a long time. How can I, how can I now look back, looking back with all of this experience, try to fix the system in a way that might prevent a lot of, you know, a lot of this for people. And I think it's, you know, we, it's just become, I think, a new interest. And it's partly because of my personal experience, partly because I love reading about new stuff. And like I said, you know, going to Grand Rounds about learning about something I didn't know. And like for the podcast, each episode, I, you know, I was like reading tons of articles about, you know, for example, like the liver or metabolism. So I could, so I could hold my own talking with the liver doctor or, you know, with the immunologist. And so I get to learn new things about the body and that's super cool. And so I kind of feel like I'm giving myself kind of a med school 2.0, but like on my terms, you know, which is, which is, which is interesting. So I think it really interests me. And I really feel that we are right now on the precipice of a dark ages. I really do. And I mean, I know I sound very alarmist when I say that, but I, I just think that these anti-vaccine lies, for example, is just to pick one aspect that started, you know, they've been around for a long time, right? Obviously, even since Edward Jenner, but it didn't really pick up steam sort of until sort of Andrew Wakefield and how the press were part of that. You know, I keep getting back to, I remember seeing the um, Andrew Wakefield uh, interview where he was giving his results. And I was like, how do people get like, a pre- like how do they get a press conference for like whatever it was a 12 or 13 or 15 patient retro like review like how is that a press conference like wh- wh- why is the press interested in that and i 
I began, I think it's come to sort of this point where I realized that if you are not part of the press, if you're not helping to control the conversation, it's going to careen off in this awful way because the press is often interested in conflict, even when none is there. The press is interested in fear headlines. I mean, this is why, you know, for example, with the Women's Health Initiative and hormone, uh, menopausal hormone therapy, you know, we've known for, you know, for 20 years that the way that was presented to the public was was incorrect and yet it's still fear headlines about that that sell and so i realized that you have to be controlling more of that conversation uh, sort of at a at a press level if you will um, and so you know when you do more and more writing you realize that editors you know they have ideas that they want to go out. And you're sometimes as a physician going, well, that's, that's not the right idea though. And advocating for that is really, can be really challenging. And so I think I've, I've sort of realized that, that we have to, we need more physicians who are able to control the conversation in a way that's medically correct. And not all ideas need to come out. I mean, you know, we, we don't have people talking about flat earth on CNN, right? We've all accepted that that's not a valid conversation. And so I think that that with medicine, that's really hard because people, medicine's been so secret and so shrouded and we haven't given people the tools to learn about their bodies. So they don't know that like our equivalent of the flat earth, that people can't see that. And so I just want to be part of changing that because I'm very concerned with, you know, all those images of people dying from COVID and physicians, you know, just pleading and nurses and, uh, you know, pulmonary techs, like everybody pleading with the public. And we still have places where, you know, people don't believe in masks or they, they believe the vaccine is going to change their DNA. I just think that, that we really are on the precipice of dark ages and we really, we need, this is an all hands on deck moment. Yes, uh, unfortunately, you know, it's becoming increasingly established that there are active assaults on science in general. Uh, as experts, our, our value is being actively devalued on a regular basis. It was four years ago. I don't know if you participated as well. You know, the March for Science. <laughs> I went down to the state capitol and I had, to, I had to march down the street in support of science. Right. And then social media has just simply fundamentally changed the way in which we interact with each other as humans and how information spreads across the globe. So with that, you can't do it alone. Uh, what's your call to arms for all of our colleagues and other medical professionals listening to this on uh, why we should all get involved as well? Yeah, we well, have to realize the other side, the anti-science side is not is not bound by truth or accuracy, right? You can say, if you can say whatever you want, um, it really allows you to have all kinds of arguments. And the, the engaging at whatever level will make a difference. And I always tell people, you know, even if it's just you're on Facebook and you don't have anything but your small little group of friends, your 12 people, that maybe you have 12 people you're friends with on Facebook, post quality information, post it every day, and write a line about why that article matters to you. Because you're friends with 12 people and they're friends with 12 people or 50 people or 100 people. And you never know when that article is going to speak to somebody. So at that level, it's very important. Get involved with your medical professional societies in, in changing the way that you interact with patients. And um, what I mean by that is like patient content, making that as friendly and that the sites are good. Think about ways that you can, um, can 
can improve in your own practice, like the handouts you give to people or how you engage about social media. I just think that there's so many different avenues. It can be from just recommending good podcasts for, I hope you recommend mine. I hope, you know, recommending good articles, good, you know, a list of reporters that you think are good, just something so people have somewhere to go because people want to have somewhere to go. They really do. And when you don't acknowledge that, they're just going to go somewhere else. And so you're really in this position to, to help people navigate this online world of disinformation and uh, misinformation. And so think about using whatever you have um, to good. I mean, if I always say, you know, if you're, I talk about the vaccine to every single patient I see, even though my office doesn't give the vaccine, you know, it it goes through a different department uh, for COVID because, you know, every so often you hit someone who hasn't and it's worth investing the five minutes to tell that person why you think it's safe. You don't get in an argument with it. You just give them the quality information because maybe that's the third time they heard it. Maybe that's the time it's going to work. Oh, that's beautifully stated. Thank you very much. And Dr. Gunter, I I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your very busy schedule to join us today. I think that this was very insightful and I'm hopeful that uh, it was beneficial for our listeners as well. Before we depart, is there anything else you'd like to add? No, just, um, you know, I I just want to ask, does the, um, does the, does the myth about uh, being allergic to iodine um, and shellfish bother you guys as much as it bothers me? Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. Because as, <laughs> as, as you know, I mean, there are major academic centers uh, to this day that still ask about that, and they will change the diagnostic tests that they or the media that they use based upon the answer, which is completely absurd. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's it's amazing to me that that and and I think that's a great talking point, right? Because it's like here we have we have doctors, we can't even convince like this old wives tale or whatever it was, this, this disinformation or misinformation has become so common that we can't get like, you know, yeah, you can't get places to change their allergy lists or, you know, whatever. And so I think that we need to clean up our own house. So I think that would be the final thing that I would say that, you know, we have a lot of, we can talk a great game, but we also need to make sure that, that we're not participating in that kind of uh, spread of disinformation, you know, in our own homes kind of thing. Clean up our own house. I love it. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. Please visit www.aaai.org for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening.